0: I'm excited to go and read range again soon.
1: (laughs) No, don't. don't, Yeah, I can take one of the recommendations. Don't read range again.
2: (laughs) True. True. You, you you clearly absorbed enough. (laughs) You're going against the ideas of range. If you just specialize in range.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That's what I'm going to get about my business card, a specialist in range. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name
2: is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just had a great chat with David Epstein, probably the most underrated author and thinker going around. Would you agree with that?
0: I like how you always have the the most, the the best author, (laughs) the smartest bloke, the most underrated.
2: Well, he's all four of them combined in one.
0: (laughs) I tend to go against the any extreme statements, but I uh, struggle to disagree with you. Range was definitely uh, one of my favorite books, probably my favorite book I've read this year. Epstein, I reckon, is a great mix of great ideas plus six stories that illustrate it.
2: So what you're about to hear is an expanded version. We're going to go a little bit more into the detail of David's ideas on range, and different ways you see it, manifest itself in the world, and then, of course, how you can use range to your own advantage.
0: Matt, I'll say this, you might disagree with me, but range, it's 12 chapters in our episode, we probably talked about three of those chapters. In this episode, we probably talked about another three or four of those chapters. But for me, it's one I, I would definitely recommend people read. Well, David, thanks so much for joining us. i got to say Range is the book uh, that I've read the quickest, I guess, twice in succession. As in when I put it down, it was the quickest book that I reread for the second time. Uh, so it's definitely my, my favorite book of uh, 2020 so far. That's amazing.
1: I'm, I'm honored to hear that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, can you uh, kick us off
0: with the story of uh, two famous sportsmen at the top of their field, but took very different paths to get there?
1: Yeah, so I think I think the first one, um, at least at least in the U.S., even for people who have not don't know the details of it, they've they've basically absorbed the gist because it's so culturally prevalent, and that's that's the story of Tiger Woods, whose father famously gave him a putter when he was seven months old. Uh, At 10 months, he started imitating his father's swing. At two years old, you can actually go on YouTube and see him on national television. At three, he starts saying, I'm going to be the next Jack Nicklaus. You know, I'm going to be the next great golfer. And fast forward to age 21, and he's the greatest golfer in the world. It's kind of the quintessential early specialization 10,000 hours story. On the other end of the spectrum, I told the story of an athlete who uh, took a bit of a different path. You know, he did some some swimming, some uh, some tennis, some wrestling early on. His mother was actually a tennis coach, but declined to coach him because he wouldn't return balls normally. You know, he sort of liked freestyling a little more than than following the directions. He kept trying more sports: basketball, uh, volleyball, uh, soccer. His when his coaches wanted to move him up a level to play with older boys, he, he declined because he just wanted to talk with pro wrestling about his uh, with his friends after practice, and he very much. He kept trying even more sports, you know, getting handball, rugby, skateboarding, badminton, lots of different sports. And he was very much not focused uh, early on on being the next great like Tiger Woods was. In fact, when he got good enough to warrant an interview with his local newspaper, the reporter asked him what he'd buy with his first hypothetical paycheck if he ever became a pro athlete. And he said a Mercedes. And his mother was appalled at this and asked if she could, asked the reporter if she could listen to the recording of the interview and the reporter obliged. And it turned out the boy had said Mercedes in Swiss German. He just wanted more CDs, not a Mercedes. Uh, and, and she was okay with that. And, and that, so that, that dabbler turns out to be Roger Federer, who is every bit as famous as an adult as Tiger Woods. And yet, even tennis enthusiasts generally know nothing about his developmental story, and so I thought that contrast was was interesting that we only hear one side of those kinds of stories and I was curious which one the science shows is is actually the norm
0: yeah and it's interesting which one of those is is the most like uh, the real world I guess like golf very structured very rigid you're standing still there's one thing that you need to do and you need to do it perfectly with as little deviation and and errors as possible tennis there's a bit more going on there's movement there's uh, a whole bunch of different factors but I feel even tennis is somewhat straightforward like we think like we've got Australian rules football here that the ball isn't even round so if the the drop of the ball is a few degrees off it's going to go somewhere different not to mention there's 18 blokes on your team and there's 18 blokes on the other team who are chasing you down and and you're sprinting at full pace trying to run away from someone who's trying to tackle you uh, going in all different directions so that's even more extreme but then I guess if you think of the real world uh, the skills are and nothing like golf, I guess, in that there's there's no predictable path. There's no exactly clear thing that you need to do every time you say you're, you're working in a bank. And you might think that the most important skill is you know crunching the numbers and doing the finances and understanding credit. But then if you get a promotion, then you need to learn how to manage people. You need to learn the politics. You need to learn building rapport with clients and your bosses and your uh, the people below you. And there's all these different skills that, I guess, don't replicate the the golf analogy, whatsoever, do they?
1: No, that's you mentioned a couple of things. I wanna, I wanna glance off. So please interrupt me if I get too digressive here. Um,
0: no, please digress.
1: First of all, Aussie rules, which I love. I uh, went to the grand final a couple of years ago. Uh, the it was when the Hawks uh, Hawthorne played the Eagles tw- 20 twenty uh, I've got a mate who's obsessed with like? the
0: Eagles, and he, I don't think he slept for two weeks after
1: losing that grand final. <laughs> Well, it wasn't close, so it shouldn't be. You know, with it. I guess it's not like oh, we almost had it. Um, sorry, I rubbed that one in. That wasn't. That. Um, uh, but no, really enjoyed the mix of skills that the that the sport takes. Um, but you know, you mentioned one of the, sort of the central frames of the book, which is this idea. So I, when I mentioned that we we all hear that Tiger story, and and I think that's partly because it's or stories like it, because it's dramatic, uh, rightfully so, and. But also because it seems like it's this tidy message that we can extrapolate to anything that we want to be good at, and that, that's what a number of of best-selling books have done. and And I think that's a problem because golf, in many ways, turns out to be this uniquely horrible model of most things that humans want to learn, uh, for exactly the reasons you specified. It's it's the epitome of what the psychologist Robin Hogarth called a kind learning environment. That means. The next steps and goals are always clear. The rules are clear and never change. When you do something, you get feedback that's quick and accurate. You know, work next year will look like work last year. And sports, to some degree, are are more like that than a lot of things people deal with because they have enumerated rules that don't change. But the other end of the spectrum is what Hogarth called wicked learning environments, where lots of human behaviors involved. uh, Rules may not even be articulated; they may change uh, without notice. You may or may not get feedback when you do something. It may be delayed or inaccurate. Your next steps and goals may not be handed to you, and work next year may not look like work last year. And those are the situations you mentioned that a lot of us, we increasingly find ourselves in in the work world where we can't count on things looking the same from one day to the next. And you mentioned moving from sort of a more specialized role to managing. In fact, I was just looking at some data that LinkedIn uh, shared with me, and, and it showed that the the strongest predictor of who would go on to become an executive, they examined 500,000 members, was the number of different job functions that someone had held earlier in their career. And mm-hmm. right? so they had to get this sort of broad view, this almost tour of, of a pretty complex uh, system to be able to manage it later on. And I think we're increasingly going toward the skills that stay valuable being those, um, some of the things that you mentioned for this wicked world, like here's, here's an example that I sort of resonated with me, right? So another kind learning environment is, is chess that I write about a little bit in range chess. The grandmaster's advantage is largely based on knowledge of recurring patterns. So you need to specialize early in chess. Um, It's if, if for competitive chess players, if they didn't specialize in sort of starting that, that rigorous pattern study by age 12, their chances of reaching international master status, Uh, It would drop from 1 in 4 to to 1 in 55. So you need that. That's also why it's so easy to automate because these specialized, more kind learning environment repetitive skills are easier and easier to automate because computers are even better at doing the same thing over and over without deviation. So when I was looking at some uh, news coverage of ATMs um, coming online in the 70s, it all said, oh, you know, bank tellers are going to be out of work now. And in fact, what happened, at least in the United States, is there have been more ATMs, there have been more bank tellers because they make each branch cheaper to operate. So there are more branches overall, fewer tellers per branch, but it totally changed the job from one of repetitive cash transactions to one where uh, the person is a marketing professional and a customer service representative and a a financial advisor and all all these sort of more complex things because the kinder aspect of the job has been outsourced to computers. And so I think these, these broader skills become even more valuable and more durable as we move toward this more complex, fast changing work world.
2: Yeah. So I'm someone who's like uh, really gone around finding match quality early in in my career. Mm. And as I was going down that path, a lot of people be like, Oh, Adam, you're spreading yourself too thin, mate. Just choose one thing and just stick with it. Right? Like, do you think it does get to a point when you're when you're moving around finding match quality that uh, there does come a time in some professions where you need to land uh, sooner rather than later about what what's your thing going to be or is it a constant uh, moving forward and constantly finding a range and always a work in progress?
1: You know, I, I think I think there are obvious incentives for specializing quickly. I think we need to recognize that those that there tends to be a short-term, long-term trade-off and that we are more wired um, to be able to perceive the short-term trade-off, obviously. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm adding some some research that I've regretted kind of cutting out of the book, even though it's related to some stuff that's still in there. I'm adding back in an afterward where in a dozen countries, people were matched for their parents' education, their test scores, and their own years of education. The difference was, did they get career-focused education, you know, vocational or apprenticeships, or did they get broader general education first? And the pattern was those who got the career-focused education, they're more likely to get hired right out of training. They're more likely to make more money right away, but they end up so much less adaptable with such a more narrow skill set in a changing work world that they end up spending less time in the workforce over the course of their life. So they win in the short term but lose in the long term. So they end up with lower lifetime earnings because they, they don't adapt well. And these are people who are matched on all these other factors. And so I think we're only really, it's only easy for us to kind of perceive the short-term advantage, right? Unless somebody actually sets out and studies it this way, it's less easy to understand that sort of long-term advantage, but there there is that trade-off. And so I think a lot of times there are obvious reasons for a short-term advantage to kind of settle down and, and specialize in something. And I think it's okay to. To, you know, I don't think you should just bounce around everything like aimlessly. But I think the the sort of productive approach or habit of mind to me is akin to what the people in the dark horse project that I wrote about did and This was this study at Harvard uh, that looked at kind of how people find good match quality in their careers. Match quality meaning is term economists use to describe the degree of fit between your interests and abilities and the work that you do. And they, they called the project the Dark Horse Project because they were examining people who were fulfilled in their work. And these people would come in and say, well, don't, you know, don't tell people to do what I did because I started med school or whatever, and I dropped out and then I did this other thing and that didn't work. So I had to start my own thing. And they all saw themselves as having, not all, most, the, the majority saw, because some did travel a linear career path, but the majority, the large majority, saw themselves as coming out of nowhere, traveling this really unique path. So they all thought they were exceptions, when in fact, in a knowledge economy, that turns out to be the norm. And their sort of common approach was they would say, get a job. And they'd say, you know, instead of looking around and saying, here's who's younger than me and has more than me, so I need to be doing what they're doing. They'd say, here are my skills and interests right now. Here are the opportunities in front of me. I'm going to take this one, and maybe a year from now I'll change because I will have learned something about myself. And they just kind of keep doing that uh, until you know, and they they keep improving their match quality in that way by moving around. And I think that's kind of a lifelong process. Uh, but they get they get better and better and better. And of course the work world changes, so I think it's really a lifelong process in that way. But I think it's a habit of mind where you set out to learn about yourself and your options and continually improve that, improve that match quality. And if you find something early that, that is a perfect fit, that's great. I think the problem is um, when people are, are settling for subpar match quality simply because they're, they're in a rush. Fantastic. There was
0: three uh, great stories that we didn't get to cover in our own uh, episode talking about the book that I think really illustrates this idea of sort of going broad at the start, not worrying about feeling left behind, getting a, a range of experiences, and then bringing them together later on um, for a great advantage. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll just list the three stories, and you can either tell them all or pick pick your favourite one to explain. One was the, the Italian orphanage who, came these, who became these uh, great musicians. Uh, mm-hmm. One was the guy very low on the rungs at the playing card company uh, who turned it into one of the biggest tech companies in the world. And then one was the looking at the the comic books and the, and the cartoon drawers and, and bring a range of skills to become the the best. Um, hit us with any or all of those ideas.
1: Okay. I, I like all the story, and maybe the Italian orphans is probably my favorite story, but the, the tech and the comic books, I think I can mash into kind of one story. So I'm going to start with that one Ooh, yeah. and then, then you can tell me how I'm doing. <laughs> um, it sounds like so, a challenge. <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, The gentleman in tech you were talking about, a Japanese man named Gunpei Yokoi, whose work I admired, he he didn't score well on his electronics exams in college and university, and so he had to settle for a low-tier job as a machine maintenance worker at a playing card company uh, in Kyoto, while his peers, who scored really well, went to become sort of tech specialists at big companies in Tokyo. And he realized he wasn't equipped to work on the cutting edge. Uh, But... The, the company was in crisis and had to diversify, and even though he wasn't equipped to work on the cutting edge, he wanted to help, and he, and he thought that maybe because there's so much information now quickly available, maybe he could combine things in ways that specialists were sort of too narrow to see, things that were already well understood, so he didn't have to kind of reinvent the wheel, as it were. And so he decided to combine some technology, well-known technology. Well, first he, he got an idea. He started trying to figure out what people wanted. And one day riding the bullet train, he saw some bored uh, corporate employees on a long commute playing with calculators to, to ease the boredom of their commute. And he said, maybe I can give them something better. And so he, he took some well-known technology from the calculator industry, merged it with some well-known technology from the credit card industry, and made handheld games. And these were a hit. And it turned this this playing card company, which had been founded in the 19th century in a wooden storefront, into a toy and game operation um, that people may have heard of. It's called Nintendo. right So this was the machine maintenance man who had this idea to merge sort of old technologies in new ways. and the, the translation of his philosophy, Uh, It translates to lateral thinking with withered technology and it became the core creative philosophy for Nintendo. What he means by withered technology is stuff that's already well understood. You know, that already you'll be able to apply it quickly because the basics are understood and lateral thinking means taking it from one area and moving it somewhere else where it's seen as invention. And of course, his magnum opus was the Game Boy, which was a technological joke in every way. The processor was a decade old. The screen looks like, you know, rotting salad or something. Um, And... When it was coming out, it came out at the same time as color competitors from Sega and Atari, and it blew them away because YoCoin knew that what his customers cared about was not color, but affordability, portability, durability, um, game selection, battery life. And by using this easy technology, he allowed drew sort of the whole game programming community onto his team, um, and it became the best-selling console of, of the 20th century. By the way, while, while I was reporting the book, I found my own in my parents' basement, and I flipped it on and played Tetris, which was really impressive because the batteries <laughs> had expired in 2007 and 2013. It's um, still working. Yeah. So, and that, that sort of mimics some of these research findings. That's a microcosm of some research findings in a technology where increasingly you see the most impactful patents coming not necessarily from individuals who drill deeper, deeper, deeper into one area of technology as classified by in this case, the U.S. Patent Office, most of the research I looked at, Um, and more often by teams that include people who've worked in a large number of different technologies, often combining things from multiple domains for invention. And that that looks really similar to this, and this is where I'm making the bridge between two of the stories here, looks, looks really similar to this fascinating research in comic books where a pair of scientists wanted to see over a course of 20 years what work history characteristics cause some comic book creators to be more likely to make blockbusters than, than others. And what they saw, they, they had been used to studying industrial processes, which are a lot more repetitive. And so they brought their hypotheses over from there and they thought, okay, it'll be the number of years of experience in the field. And that turned out to be wrong. Okay. It'll be the resources of the publisher turned out also to be wrong. Well, then it's, it's gotta be the number of previous comics made, right? Also wrong. The best predictor turned out to be the number of different genres that a creator had worked in. So like drama, fantasy, adult, nonfiction, crime, all, all these different genres. And one of the most interesting things to me was that at low levels of breadth, you were better off with a team of specialists. So for example, you were better off, instead of having one person who'd worked in three genres, you were better off having a team of three single genre specialists. After five genres, that was no longer true. Then the individual could do an integration of knowledge that the team could not recreate. And so my guess is, again, with the short-term, long-term trade-off, that we don't develop as many of those individuals as we could because early on, they just look like they're behind and like they should be replaced with specialists. But in fact, if you give them a chance to develop that breadth, um, they can kind of become inimitable. So I think the findings are sort of conceptually similar in, in some of the research and creativity and, um, you know, in technological innovation.
0: As you tell telling the Nintendo story, I was thinking, oh, yeah, that's kind of cool that he put those two ideas together to create something new, but that's very different from, you know, creating something completely brand new and innovative yeah. like the iPhone. But then it's like, actually, hang on, there's like, there's already cameras, mm-hmm. there's already phones, there's already like computers to access the internet and do emails and stuff. And then they just combine them all together to create, you know, one of the most innovative products ever. Just merging yeah. three things that already existed.
1: Yeah, and actually and touch screens and things like that. There's a great pretty recent documentary out called General Magic. And it's about the Silicon Valley startup that kind of invented the sort of the smartphone before the smartphone really took off. And the problem they ran into was I mean, they they made it. You know, they had a they had a phone that did emails and ticket reservations and all these sorts of things. And and it was a touch screen. But it was too far ahead of its time, and so it didn't actually work well in practice. Even though it was incredibly cool, and that you know the the company became valued, uh, had tremendous value went public before like the product was even released. I think it was the first time that that had happened, and it ended up becoming worth nothing because the product didn't work out at all. But their their error seems to be it was really cool. A lot and a lot of some of the people went on to become incredibly. Um, influential in tech, I think one of the guys that worked on it became the founder of Nest, but they were just too far ahead of their time, right whereas Yokoi would would lag that kind of innovation. He would look for stuff that was already well understood so you didn't run into that problem so they, they were they were too far out front, so it was pretty cool, but it took you know some more years for that technology to be understood and, and, and fluid enough to put it into something that actually worked well enough for people to use and buy. Mm.
2: So a few decades ago, was Yokoi. Uh, Fast forward to today, there's a lot more technological development. Is the trends of, uh, I guess, the benefit of of range increasing with all the new technologies today? And what kind of opportunities do you see with uh, the way the world's heading right now with all this rapid innovation and and rapid change that's happening?
1: Yeah, I, I think it is. I mean, and again, this comes partly from looking at the patent research where you're seeing more and more the people making these very, um, influential and valuable patents are are people who have worked in a bunch of different technological classes, and they're and they're often um, taking things from multiple domains, and and that that trend has uh, ex- expanded basically. So since about mm, like the late nineteen eighties, more or less, early nineteen nineties, and so so I do think that suggests that there's more opportunity for rapid innovation from combining things from different domains. And I guess we all know that intuitively, I think, even if we don't say it, that, that discipline, disciplinary boundaries or silos, as we, we sometimes kind of call them derogatorily, are a necessary evil of making the way we study the world comprehensible, but actually someone has to put the world together again at the end of the day. And so I think people who can work across some of these boundaries have incredible opportunities because there's so much available. And so much specialist knowledge, it's not that we don't need specialist knowledge, of course we do, but it's disseminated so thoroughly and so quickly that I think the data suggests we need fewer of them because their their knowledge is quickly available to a large number, number of people who can kind of merge it with other domains to to create things. And I think that will continue to be true. I mean, if you think of, think of something like making websites, right? That... There was a point not that long ago where you really needed to like know HTML or something to mm-hmm. to make a website. Now, you know, you're you're the like the person that I paid to make a website that I had, um, well, that I still have, doesn't know any HTML. He's like an artistic designer and he doesn't need to know any HTML. He's better off having design skills. And so I think a lot of there are more and more opportunities as some of the tools that used to be more restricted to, you know, more specialized part of the work world uh, become much more widely available and, and, and easy to use in a lot. You know, podcasting is a pretty good example, right? At one point, you had to be someone who worked their way up in a radio station. And now there's a huge number of uh, incredible programs, I think, because this technology has been made available for a ton of people to use in, in their sort of area, whatever they're interested in, 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 in whatever way they want
2: yeah one of the things I look at, like a uh, uh, driverless vehicles or something, and you think of the computational complexity that goes into programming a car go say from the city out to the countryside, and all the different and all the complexity involved with that. And if that's being solved today in one industry, you could just think translate that to any other industry, and any computational complexity that's nowhere near that is is probably you know on the chopping block for being uh, solved by some programmers around the world all those technical issues.
1: Yeah, no, I, no, I agree with that. I think uh, I think, I, I agree.
0: In terms of um, you're saying that, you know, to be a good at building websites 20 years ago, you probably need to know all of the different types of, of code required, whereas today a good website maker is someone who has a design aesthetic, someone who understands a user experience going through a website. So that the skills of what makes someone good have shifted or like podcasting, maybe... You know, 10, 15 years ago, you had to be a, a sound engineer to be able to make a podcast, whereas now it's more about the, the content and how you tell mm-hmm. the stories and stuff. So as all, more and more jobs, and even you mentioned at the start about the, the ATMs, turn a bank teller from someone who just gives you money to someone who has to you know give some advice or solve some problems. Uh, in terms of the way that the world is shifting and some of the, the more mundane stuff is being taken care of by, by machines and technology. What are some of the broader high level skills that are becoming more and more valuable, I guess, that anyone should be going out there to, to learn and improve upon?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think it depends sort of where we, where we start conceptually. So, so one thing that I think, and I'm partly interested in this because I'm interested in how journalists understand or don't understand numbers, for example, is, is number sense basically. And I write about this a little bit early in the book where in in the topic of they're called fermi estimation so fermi estimation is named after uh, enrico fermi you know who arranged the first sustained nuclear fission reaction and he had this uh practice where he would ask ask people in his lab to just like make really wild estimates of things you know he would ask them like just how many like cows do you think you know are <laughs> in canada or something And the point isn't, they have to get it right. And so I I had a chemistry professor in college who was a huge fan of this. So we'd have a test every once in a while, you know, when we'd have an exam, there'd be a question on it that would pop up, like, how many piano tuners are there in New York City? That's one of the ones I remember it was on one. And your first instinct is to say, you know, for me, it was like, I don't know, 10,000. And (laughs) just to guess, you know, but then you realize that if you actually break it down into a lot of different estimates and you have some number sense, you say, okay, how many people are in the city? How many families does that mean there are? How many households does that mean there are? What portion do I think might have a piano? How many houses can a piano tuner probably get to in a day? How many days a year do they probably work, et cetera? And none of the estimates actually have to be all that accurate for you to get a pretty reasonable estimate at the end to be in the right order of magnitude. And I think that actually turns out to be an incredibly useful skill. I use it There's not a day that goes by where I'm not evaluating something, usually, usually something I think is not quite framed right in the news, um, because I can quickly make sort of estimates like that, uh, and and realize that something might not be being framed quite right when numbers show up in articles. And when I was a science grad student, I used that like crazy too to get a quick sense of you know where else should I look or or what might be wrong here or what else might be interesting. And so I think there's some of these skills of critical analysis that they can help people no matter what they're doing, whether they're they're uh, trying to quickly process news information, um, whether they're trying to help someone else think about a problem or whether they're trying to identify important problems. Like I was looking at a little bit, you know, Google's uh, or, or Alphabet, I guess their offshoot, it's called X, where they do like the moonshot uh, problems. You know, they try to like, can we have balloons that will bring high-speed internet to the entire world? So they do like the really you know, out there kind of moonshot projects. And in just reading some of what they work on, it was clear that they use skills like this where they'll say, okay, uh, we're not, we may not be the best balloon makers, but how can we add value? Like, could we get something this high in the air uh, with this much reach and do something a little different than anybody else has done? And there's start by when you're doing these projects, you have to start by, sort of figuring out what's even a feasible project where you can add value. And it seems to me that they some of the way they do that is by chopping down the problem space, by making these very broad estimates early on. And so I think this kind of numeracy that allows you to make quick estimates and evaluate information uh, is a skill that's incredibly important. I, I mean, I kind of use it on a daily basis in one way or another. And there's a great online course if people are interested. They called called calling bullshit. Um, that really tries to impart some of those skills to help you sort of, you know, sometimes evaluate the news and things like that. So I think skills like that are really important and really undertaught or not taught at all for the most part. Fantastic. And if
0: uh, if someone listening is hooked on this idea of range, they've they've seen the light, I guess, that they don't have to be the Tiger Woods who started, you know, when they were in the early, early, early years and got an early head start and and move their way to the top, they realize that, hang on, there are golf isn't the best representation of the world. Range is the way to go. What are some of the other uh, prescriptions or advice that you can give about how to actually go about um, consciously trying to seek out adding some more range?
1: know, yeah, I think there are a few things that, that come right to mind. Um, one is, well, let me say, so there's a guy that's in the news right now because of the coronavirus who happens to be like the main character in the last chapter of my book named arturo casa um, and he is He is a man with extreme range. He's he's one of the most influential immunologists um, In the world, but he has degree in pest control uh, He brought up working at mcdonald's in his job interview at johns hopkins school of public <laughs> health where he's the chair of immunology Um, he's and I was just reading about him. He was on nbc Because he was he was saying, you know, i'm interested in history and since I've read a ton of history, and you can't talk to him for like two minutes without him bringing up historical <laughs> uh, anecdotes. Um, so I sort of wrote that in because it was, yeah, it's, it's just impressive. But, um, and so he's on NBC just the other day saying, yeah, I'm an, I'm an infectious disease researcher who's interested in history. And so I know that in past pandemics, before we had vaccines, uh, doctors found that it sometimes worked to take blood serum and look for antibodies from people who had recovered, and use that to treat people who were sick. And in some cases, it drastically cut the death rates. And they didn't know exactly what they what was happening, but they found that this was working. And right now, we don't have a vaccine. So e- even though we're much more technologically advanced with regard to this new virus, we might as well be, you know, hundred years ago. Mm. Um, for the moment, and so he suggested as a stopgap using blood serum. Uh, From people who have recovered and I think it was smart for him to get that in the news because all of a sudden now It's mobilized people from over 10 states. Uh, He was just saying um, Public health Experts scientists who are all coming together to try to make this happen really quick because before we have a vaccine This might be able to save a lot of people and it's interesting that this massive mobilization is coming because Arturo likes to read history and often science history and what he advises his, the people who work in his lab is and by the way he's he's at Johns Hopkins he moved from a you know very comfortable job uh, somewhere else because he wanted Hopkins has allowed him to start this program to try to broaden the skills of future scientists uh, with this sort of more general thinking early on in their in their education and he tells everyone in his lab to every day read something outside of their field every day and he says they'll often tell him like no i'm, I'm too busy sorry i don't i don't have time and he says no no you do because it's more important than these other things that you're doing like you, you'll do these things it's more important and also by the way don't take and he says you know don't take your lunch back to your lab bench take it and sit with someone that you don't know because these the important collaborations will be interdisciplinary and it, you might feel like you're wasting time not taking your lunch back to your lab bench but it may end up being the most important thing you do and so that that's so. Number one recommendation, read something outside your field every day. It could be two minutes, but just something. And I think his other suggestion about lunch gets to uh, this this kind of well-known body of research called the strength of weak ties. And th- this was really about how people find jobs, that it turns out they usually find jobs not from people in their direct network, because those people tend to be quite similar to them and have similar networks, but that most people get new jobs from people sort of on the fringes of their network who, who have a very different body of knowledge than the people in the center of their network. And so I think it's really useful to find ways to keep expanding your network a little bit because we can get comfortable and end up with a network of people in our own field who basically know the same stuff and the same people that we know. And if you do that, you're not kind of capitalizing on that strength of weak ties. And, and lastly, just for myself, um, I started... What My favorite quote in range is from Herminia Ibarra, a um, uh, professor who studies career transitions. And it is, we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. And what she meant is that there's all these kind of quizzes and stuff that are meant to convince you that you can just introspect about yourself and know what you should be doing in the world. But in fact, what the research shows is really you have to do stuff and then reflect on it. Because you, you, you learn about yourself by doing stuff and not before. And so I was really influenced by her work. And so I started something I call my my book of small experiments, which is basically like when I was a science grad student. um, I, you know, you had a notebook where you'd have a hypothesis about something and then you'd find a way to test it. And then you'd write down what you found. And I started doing that for myself where every other month I'll write down something I want to learn or investigate. Uh, That can be a skill I want to try or just someone in some field I would like to communicate with. Uh, and I'll write down a hypothesis about how I can do that and what I think I'll learn. And then I writing it down like forces me to go through with it. And that's led to some really fruitful stuff for me. It's forced me to kind of expand my network in certain ways. And it, it led to me taking an online fiction writing class for beginners, which really ended up being a huge help in very unexpected ways for writing range. Uh, so that's something that I've chosen to do, to, to force myself to not just continue to do only the things I'm already comfortable with, basically. Yeah, that's
2: uh, three bits of phenomenal advice and particularly the first one, you're really confirming our self-opinion also (laughs) because we read a lot and we like to tell ourselves we're always doing the right kind of stuff. So yeah, we love love hearing that advice. And the third one, when it comes to experimentation, uh, what are some of your favorite books or most impactful books that you've read that you'd be able to recommend for
1: everyone listening right now? So one of the, the book that's probably had the single biggest influence on my thinking is by Philip Tetlock. I kind of summarize his, his research in chapter 10 of, of the book. So he studies judgment and decision making. And his most famous work was a 20 year long study of experts making predictions uh, about geopolitical and economic trends. And it turned out that the worst forecasters were the most specialized experts who had kind of studied one or two problems their whole career and came to see the whole world through the one lens or mental model. And And the best predictors were these just sort of bright people with wide-ranging interests, basically. Um, and it, it didn't influence me. And he's written two books. One was called Expert Political Judgment, and it's about this forecasting. And that one is very dense, super interesting, but very dense. Another one's called uh, Super Forecasting, which is kind of a, a translation for, for the general public. And But I read Expert Political Judgment because Super Forecasting wasn't out at the time I first got interested in his work. And what a lot of it is about is how you, like the the components of good judgment and how you hold yourself accountable for your own judgment so that you learn from it. One of the most remarkable things in the book was that some of these very specialized experts, it's one thing to make a wrong judgment, you know, whatever that happens to everybody, but they would fail to learn from it. In fact, some of them even got worse as they as they accumulated credentials and experience and that's not a situation you want to be in and so tetlock's work really influenced me in terms of um adopting habits of mind and sometimes even setting up systems where i hold myself accountable for my own thinking so that when i screw up at least i'm learning something from it so i would recommend uh super forecasting and or expert political judgment again expert political judgment had the huge influence on me but it's a very dense book um, you know, written more for a bit of an academic audience, and super forecasting is great and and much more accessible. That's um, good because I um yeah I mentioned
0: to Adam Jones, I said, can you buy super fans, and we'll read it soon. Um, and then he bought Super Forecasting <laughs> instead.
1: So, yeah. It wasn't a, it wasn't a wasted purchase. We we'll have to get onto that <laughs> one. S- su- super fans, the the book by George Dorman. uh The newer one by Pat Flynn. Okay, okay, um, gotcha. Haven't read bad. that one. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, that's a that's yeah. It's a good mistake. Well, you know. Very very similar to each other in its title. Yeah. In a title yeah. At least I don't think it's <laughs> that's funny. Easy super Forecasting is a good one. You know, of of the new books, I would say. So sorry, yeah, I, I don't. I won't carry on, but there are a couple that I've read just recently if people are looking for new, new recommendations. I thought, yeah, please. I thought I thought Loon Shots by Safi Bacall, L-O-O-N by Safi Bacall uh, was super interesting in one of the, I'm into analogies, I guess. He, he's, a, he's a physicist who uh, wrote this book about kind of crazy projects where you try to do something extremely innovative. And I thought he used an analogy that really captured something interesting about a phase transition. You know, physicists think of phase transitions as something going from liquid to gas or whatever. And he talked about the phase transition of organizations where they go from small startup where everyone has a stake in survival. And so they're all interdisciplinary and getting on board to where they become large and established. And it shifts to where people have more of a stake in protecting their own turf instead of overall survival. And so they often end up working against the... The, the greater goals of the organization. I thought that was super interesting. And then Maria Kanakova who's one of my favorite writers, she's a psychologist who was researching a book on bluffing and in the course of that accidentally became a pro poker player. I mean, she, she didn't know like how many cards were in a deck two years ago and she became a pro. Her book's not out yet, but it's coming out soon called The Biggest Bluff. Uh, and I got an early copy and, and loved it. I mean, I love all of her writing, but um, that's that's one to look forward to.
0: Fantastic. That's definitely one to add to our list as well. Um, well, David, thanks so much for uh, speaking to us in these uh, uncertain times that we're living in uh, at this very present moment. Um, we, we absolutely love range. Where can people find more about range and where can people find more about you? Uh,
1: DavidEpstein.com. And I am uh, this week starting up a an coit newsletter that I sort of started and then dropped. But uh, So they can also sign up for that there if they want want to read a bunch of the stuff that uh, I had to cut out of the book because I learned that books are published in multiples of 16 pieces of paper. So I couldn't get everything in that.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: If you're listening on Spotify, you can share this episode directly onto Instagram stories so that anyone can check out this episode very quickly and very simply. Tag us on Instagram. We're not really that good at social media, but if you tag at what you will learn on Instagram, we'll give you a like. We'll give it a share on our story as well because we love seeing what you guys are enjoying and what you guys are listening to.